All right, you may recall from our study last week in soteriology. Sorry, repeat the question. <laughs> <laughs> what did we study last week in soteriology? You guys remember? We looked at John 10 and John 14. Exclusivity of Christ. That's a big deal in, in our day and in our society. We have to always keep that in mind. And then we kind of went on a little bit of a rabbit trail and we were talking about um, easy believism. I gave you this handout on easy believism. We had this kind of spectrum that we had up on the board. And over on this far left side, we had easy believism. Do you remember what we had on the right side? Lordship salvation. Uh, you could also call this uh, free grace. It's another term people use to talk about how we just believe and then we can kind of go on doing whatever else it is that we want. Uh, there's another more theological term that anybody familiar with that? That we can live however we want after coming to Christ? Licentiousness. Yeah, Um I was thinking antinomian. You guys remember that term? Huh. Anti is against him. Uh, That's what the easy believers are, right? Yeah. Yeah, so they would say, you just believe, just say this prayer, and then you can go on, you can live however you want, and it's completely fine. Remember I told you that story, were you here last week? You were here last week. I told you that story of the man that I met, said uh, that he met over 200 prostitutes, and all of them were Christian to one degree or another. So he was definitely antinomian in his understanding of soteriology that... You just somehow affirm Christ, even in the slightest, and that makes you, to some degree, Christian. Um, there is no scale for Christianity like this. This is a scale of uh, how Christians understand salvation, but you are either saved or you are unsaved. And I think this article that I printed out for you goes into that a little bit. Um, Does it talk about carnal Christian here also? Yeah, a little bit. Um, I want to read just uh, a few Maybe a couple paragraphs told from this article. Uh, starting up at the top, it says that easy believism is somewhat derogatory. We were talking about that last week, how um, it's kind of a, a term that those who embrace antinomian theology wouldn't embrace. <laughs> they would um, not be okay with that. And they use it with lordship salvation. They use lordship salvation as like a bad word. Oh, that's, that's lordship theology. That's somebody who's, uh, he believes in lordship salvation. Um, again, that's kind of rich in my background, so that was my understanding and my terminology for a long time. But now I've totally embraced that, and I'll have a problem saying that, yes, I believe in worship salvation, whereas easy believism isn't as embraced by others. But that's not me. Um, picking up, it says, easy believism is somewhat of a derogatory term used by opponents of the view that one needs only to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. From this, they conclude that those who hold to sola fide, or faith alone, teach that no corresponding need exists for a committed life to Christian discipleship as proof of salvation. However, this is not what sola fide means. True faith in Christ will always lead to a changed life. And so that is what easy believism denies. 
um, saying that they can go on continuing to live however they want. Their life won't necessarily be changed. Remember, we discussed how um, it's common for people to say, well, that's what it means to be a disciple. That's like that next level of grace, where if you truly want to follow Christ, you truly want to be a disciple, then you do these other things, these other set of verses that Christ laid out for us. But to just be saved, all we have to do is have faith, like a kind of weak faith, um, not a full understanding faith. Um, the last sentence in the second paragraph says, if there is no evidence of growth and good works, we have reason to doubt that salvation ever truly took place. Faith without works is dead, James 2.20. Faith is not a saving faith. So uh, a little bit farther on, I think it's James 4. Um, maybe it's not. Jerry will tell me. Um, says that um, even the demons believe and shudder. You say there's one God, well, good. But even the demons believe that, and they shudder, and they have an understanding. Yeah, there's one God, but um, we're looking for a, a faith that entails more. We talked about how belief and faith and trust were all interrelated last week. And then the third paragraph, I want to read most of that for us. It says that faith alone does not mean that some believers follow Christ in a life of discipleship, while others do not. The concept of the carnal Christian as a separate category of non-spiritual believer is completely unscriptural. The idea of the carnal Christian says that a person may receive Christ as Savior during a religious experience, but never manifest evidence of a changed life. This is a false and dangerous teaching in that it excuses, excuses various ungodly lifestyles. A man may be an unrepentant adulterer, liar, or thief, and he's saved because he prayed a prayer as a child. He's just a carnal Christian. The Bible nowhere supports the idea that a true Christian can remain carnal for an entire lifetime. Rather, God's word presents only two categories of people, Christians and non-Christians, believers and unbelievers, those who have bowed the knee to the Lordship of Christ and those who have not. So are you picking up the perspective of the author of this article and where he's coming from? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He's definitely more on the Lordship salvation side of things. And then one last thing on the back side, um, after that first full sentence, says so the problem of the problem is a misunderstanding of the word belief. With true salvation comes genuine repentance and real life change. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that those who are in Christ are a new creation. Is it possible that a new person that Christ creates is one who continues to walk in the carnal, carnality of flesh? And he answers his own question and says, well, no, it's not. So uh, those are... Just some more thoughts on easy believers on what it means to um, to fall into that that spectrum of free grace and lordship and salvation. Yeah. Well, weren't you saying that at the left end of the spectrum, easy believism, um, that there was a question even of the need for repentance? Um, Did you say that? Yeah. Because I've actually heard that too. Um, on both sides. So what I did, of course, we put a line up here to say that there are people who hold to this position who are not in Christ, for sure. But there are people who 
hopes of physician who are in Christ, but they have misdefined repentance and misunderstood repentance. While they themselves, I believe, have repented, um, they will deny the need for repentance, and they will preach a, a soft, weak, false gospel that says that you can come to Christ just by praying a prayer. So they don't have a full understanding of how salvation works, but I'm not only going to say they're unsaved because of that. I think that there are many Christians who are saved who can't articulate the true biblical gospel. And we see that on both sides of this spectrum for sure. Other thoughts on that? And last week, we left off on a slide with a quote by John MacArthur. And John MacArthur is over on this side, Dave It's on the Lordship Salvation side of things. Uh, and he kind of caused a big stir back in the, the 80s and 90s with his thoughts on that. And so um, let's pull up this. Oh, it's not going to work. <laughs> I pushed something wrong, apparently. Is the TV on? TV's on. There we go. Yeah, I was messing over here, so I took the cursor away. But this quote from MacArthur and Mayhew says that scripture is unmistakably clear. Repentance is not an optional element, but is an essential component of the true gospel. But those who insist that it is possible to savingly trust in Christ without repenting of sin find themselves in direct contradiction to the gospel according to Jesus and the apostles. So that's a pretty strong statement against this other side of easy believism. If you say that we don't need to repent, or if you misdefine repentance and say that it's just belief like, um, like the demons have to have this Again, intellectual understanding that, okay, well, there was a Jesus, and yeah, he's God, and he died for me, um, and that's all it is, then it says that they are preaching a false gospel, essentially, that they find themselves in direct contradiction to the gospel according to Jesus, and that is the title of the book that he released in 1988 that um, caused sparks within the the Christian world, apparently. I wasn't born until 89, so I'm just reading about it in history books, but um, it still has lasting repercussions that we can see today. Um, this book that he released, and he was kind of taking shots at a uh, man that we will quote here in a moment from this other side, another man who's definitely on the right side of his life, um, Charles Ryder. And they found themselves on two opposite ends of this discussion, this debate about what does it mean to call Jesus Lord? Is that part of salvation or does that come after salvation? Uh, yes, I um, you. Under worship salvation, uh, well, no, John, it seemed like there was two definitions. John McCarthy came out with the title of worship salvation, but it wasn't the same as what was being viewed. In, in that sense of the word, because it didn't originally, Lordship Salvation was not a permanent change at that point. A permanent change, what do you mean? Well, I say permanent change of, of mind or concept of Christ and Christ alone. And in that sense of the word, or less it. I know that John MacArthur was Christ and Christ alone. Yeah. Doubt. But wasn't there a skewed point? It's kind of like Calvinism was. <clears throat> they added all those things to capitalism and blurred it because it was originally the original format of the UK. 
It was just when they started dissecting and doing all that, that it went awry. And then since the word, but uh, I may be wrong, so correct me. I don't have a problem with that. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard because there are different definitions. People are trying to find the same word from both sides, and they will use different terms and um, understand things differently. And so when somebody like John MacArthur will define worship salvation, he will say that um, Jesus has to be Lord of your life in order for you to, to be saved, that you have to, um, like we talked about last week, you have to turn your back from your sin and turn to Christ in that one action you are embracing Christ and forsaking your sin and that that terminology that phrase forsaking your sin has caused people on this other side to be like well wait you are saying that we have to um, stop sinning before we come to Christ and that's not what's being communicated um, and I think it's easy to see how that can be understood. Again, I, I used to believe that that's what we'd be taught. Well, of course we can't stop saying it. Um, we referenced several times, First John 8 and 10, that he says he doesn't sin his life, and he makes God a liar. And if we do sin, then we confess our sins, and he will, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. So there's a, a clear understanding that we will sin, but then John goes on, in not John Carter, John the, the Apostle goes on in John chapter 2 and he says, Well, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. So it's not God's desire that we sin, and it should be our desire as Christians that we sin. So if we are coming to Christ in a true sense of the word, then we won't have a desire to sin. We will truly be born again, that is, we will be created into a new creature who is distinct and different from the former. Yes. So um, I was kind of raised that you can almost achieve, almost achieve the thing of no sinning, you know, which is kind of scary. But then, like Jesus with the uh, the woman caught in adultery, there, you know, go and sin no more. So, so uh, what does he mean by that? Uh, there is a lot of conflict over whether or not that's even inspired. That's found in a couple of different places in the Bible. It's found in John 8. It's also found in uh, Luke and some transcripts, some manuscripts. The question so, is whether it's not what? Authoritative. Oh. Whether or not it was added later by somebody else. Oh. Um, and that's kind of where, where I land. Um, I don't think that it was inspired, but there are others. And R.C. Sproul was convinced that it was inspired. Um, so it's hard to say, but I think the... It's his favorite story of Jesus that wasn't in the autograph. <laughs> That's what he said. That's what R.C. Sproul yeah, said? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, but either way, it's not God's desire that we sin. Again, that same reference. It's first John 2, 1 and 2. Um, let see if I can get there. It says... My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world, which is a different controversy we'll get into a different day. Um, but yet, yeah, it's not his desire that we will go on sinning. It's his desire that we would be holy as he is holy, First Peter 1.15, um, that we would be set apart, that we would be ambassadors for him. Second Corinthians 5. So um, whether or not that's original to the manuscript, that's his desire for us. Jerry? I don't know how to say this succinctly, but my impression of that has always been that 
he's just saying, don't go doing that anymore. I mean, but some of us are saved out of a fairly benign lifestyle of sin, where others are very dramatically. And yet, there are things that you can do to keep from putting yourself in a position of, of obvious intent to sin. And certainly being prosecuted to keep going to the same places, seeing the same people, that's something that you, you know, there are things you have to do about. There are things that we can do to minimize our, our um, probability of, of sinning. But yeah, it, it all goes back to this need for proud man to be able to understand and, 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 and codify everything. And we just, our, life, our lives are much, we're much too complicated for that, much too complex. And just trying to be able to describe everything perfectly and exhaustively is ridiculous. Yeah. And this is you know, where, where we're headed. It's just another, from where we came from, is where, you know, it's just an older form of pride. Some pride is, is uh, acceptable and some is just reprehensible, but uh, <laughs> you know, we make the rules, not him. So. Yeah, that's scary parts of it. And at some level, all Christians are hypocrites. We say that we should be, yeah. we should not sin, that, that uh, we've been saved from our sin, and yet each and every day, every one of us, in one way or another, multiple times per day, sin. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think the primary problem we have is we want to do the defining of all those things instead of, you know, it's God that decides, understands, actually is a better term, is able to know when we are lying to ourselves and when we're not, when we're being honest, and we don't know that. We are so good at deceit, the heart is more, you know, we're desperately sick. We're never going to get to the bottom of that. It's something for us to... You can spell everything out exactly. Sorry, I get frustrated. <laughs> <laughs> it's not for sure. We are self-deceived. Remind me, we'll go and look at Galatians here in a minute. Do you have something? So when you say go and sin no more, I think the ideal there is, is to try not to sin anymore. You know, in Revelation, it says all those who have Wives stolen, cheated, adulterers, they, they have a place in the lake of fire. Mm -hmm. Well, if you read that list of there, we're all guilty of probably more than one yeah. of those things. That doesn't mean just because we did it once, we're going to end up in a lake of fire. Uh, the, the ideal is those who continue to practice those things, you know, their lives were marked. That, that was a characteristic of their lives. That's where they're going to end up. Christian, that shouldn't be characteristic of their life. Lying, cheating, stealing, whatever. All the things listed there shouldn't be a characteristic of a Christian life. And uh, 
not that we won't sin, but it's not it's not our goal, our desire, and it shouldn't be common in our lives. It doesn't mark our lives. We're not noted by that. First John uh, three talks about those who are children of the devil and those who are children of God. But, um, Genesis chapter two talks about how there's that distinction between light and darkness. So First John's is a good place to go and uh, read through all that and see a, a good biblical understanding of God's how God sees sin because He doesn't expect us to be sinless. Um, he realizes we will sin, but He doesn't have that desire for us. And as Peter tells us, you know, when it's getting close to the end, judgment is going to begin with us. We are the ones that are going to be held accountable initially. And if judgment begins with us, you know, what's going to happen to the Godless man and the sinner. I mean, we need to be sober about the fact that we are. We are preserving. Even though, yeah, we always have this position and practical side of us. We have this position in Christ where we're holy. We have this practical reality of our <coughs> disgusting humanness. Yeah. And fallen body and mind and parts that like to sin. Yeah, our whole being is fallen, the whole person. Yes. So our understanding is fallen just as much yes, as they, our, yes, our sinful actions. That's, that's the way you do it, yes. Um, <laughs> reason is also fallen. So I tried to write these words up on the board. My wife helped me. Um, and I think, <laughs> uh, there's not a direct relationship here. It's kind of completed a little bit. But um, people from this free grace camp will look at worship, salvation, and also that's just legalism, saying that you have to do this, you have to do that to, um, like we're saying, to, to be perfect, to achieve this sin of state, where that's not what is being communicated, or at least intended to be communicated. Whereas this side, I would label as licentious, and they, again, they wouldn't embrace that term, but I think they have given themselves licenses, and they say we have freedom in Christ, we've embraced Christ for salvation, and we can go on, and we have license and liberty to live however we want. So, um, I think that's some of what you were looking exactly. at. Yes. Um, and then I want to go to Galatians real briefly, and uh, we do three or four men, uh, we'll look at this a little bit later, and but in Galatians 6 and 7, uh, Paul says, do not be deceived. Uh, do not be self-deceived. And that word is talking about um, being off, wandering, not having anything to pull you down. the word that was used of the planets and how they would seemingly be wandering off without any guiding hand. And we know that God is guiding the planets. But um, he says, do not be self-deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. So that idea of God being mocked, I think, can apply to, to this understanding of three grades that, yeah, we can just say that we believe. And, you know, we kind of have our, our get out of hell free card. We have Jesus in our, our back pocket. And, and we're going to go out and we're going to do whatever we want. Well, God isn't locked. He knows your heart better than you know your own heart. So for you to say, yes, I believe in you, and then turn around and live your life as that former creature, still that that simple creature, just shows that you were never transformed. You never had this new transformational life to be. Mm -hmm. 
Yes. I think one difference for the individual between legalism and lordship salvation, like not when you're looking at others, but when you're looking at your own heart, is are you pursuing what you think a Christian should look like and, and your own agenda for how to be holy? Or are you pursuing God and like rejoicing and obeying him? And it could look the same outwardly, but like where is your heart? And I think it can be easy and tempting for people like me to just like see a list and I'll just do that list and that'll be easy. But that's not pursuing God, that's pursuing a list and it, it won't. Yeah, it won't end well. But yeah, if God tells us to do something and he is our Lord and our King, then we want to honor him and submit to him and obey him. But again, from the other side's perspective, they'll say, oh, that obedience is just following all the rules and wanting to be in line and adding to the sola fide, but that's a misunderstanding of sola fide. We realize and recognize we are saved by faith alone, but because we are saved by faith alone, we're going to want to honor our King in obedience. All right, Andy, and then we should probably move on. <laughs> we're going to finish it. Yeah, yeah we're going to nail this down. No. <laughs> um, so there was a certain uh, group of, of Christians in, in the United States who, um, prior to this last election, there were quote-unquote prophets that came out and said that Trump was going to be reelected, mm-hmm. and that on January 22nd, Trump would definitely be re-inaugurated as, as the president. Uh, it was so widespread that here about four weeks ago, the people who believed that there are prophets still today came out and made a statement. <clears throat> and that statement was basically that they're not prophets in the Old Testament sense of the word, but they're still prophets. Mm-hmm. And if they have the gift of prophecy, then even if they make a mistake, they have that gift. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Which is, yeah, a really convenient, you know, you could, that's, that's wide enough to fit 20 Mack trucks in sideways. Right. Well, well as long as you say it's true. So. Right. Right. <clears throat> so, uh, people who, who tend on both sides of this equation that we're talking about, uh, the people that were towards the Lordship Salvation side, not, not in the le- legalism is the wrong word, but we're condemning and saying that these people are basically, they're not Christians, they're worshiping a God that is of their own making and is not the God of the Bible, right? So I got into a discussion with a, a brother about this, and we kind of uh, had a little spat about it, and we've worked it out since, but, but the point is is that there's, there's sort of ditches that you can fall in on both ends, right? That, you know, because if, if you use this definition that these guys gave, you know, Joseph Smith could be a prophet, all right? So it's... it's it's not the, yeah, it's useless, exactly. It's a useless definition. And the point I was trying to make is that if these men, and there were some notable people on this list, including Dr. Michael Brown, whom I, I like, um, Wayne Grudem, right? And, you know, I'm sitting here, I'm going, this, I'm not saying that they're not Christians, obviously, but. The God that they're talking about, the God that sends prophets that never make a mistake, 
that is not the same God. Yeah. At least in this one area that we're talking about. And, and I mean, is it a salvation issue? I don't think so, but you can definitely be led astray if you're listening to false prophecies. For sure. And that's just one other example, one other area where we have to realize that there's a, a spectrum within Christianity. Right. The area of cessationism, um, yep. have the gifts ceased, or continuationism, do these radical gifts of the Holy Spirit continue? And we have to recognize that's not a, an issue that is definitional to Christianity, and we have to show grace on the other end. Um, but at the same time, we can stand firm on the truth of God's word would point to Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18 say, well, a prophet of God isn't going to give a false prophet. And we went through this a little bit in, uh, I don't remember what it was, Acts 20, 21, talking about Agabus and how people will point to Agabus and say, well, he gave a, a false prophecy. And so uh, it's okay to be a prophet, be called a prophet of God and give a, a prophecy that isn't fulfilled exactly the same way we identified. Well, it wasn't a false prophecy. It was um, right in line with what God said was going to happen. And to take that and use that to justify prophets who don't prophesy and speak as a mouthpiece of God um, infallibly is it's just ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense. So it uh, might be worthwhile to check that out if you have questions on that. Um, let's keep going. Um, back into the realm of imputed righteousness. Remembering again that Jesus is exclusive in the way to God. He is the way, the truth, the life. Nobody comes to the Father except The reason why people can be righteously, or rightly justified by God upon faith is because the righteousness of Christ is imputed to them. Uh, again, think back a couple weeks. We talked about how Adam's sin is imputed to us. Right, uh, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. Um, remember that to be justified is to be declared righteous. So, uh, Logan, to your point, it's not that we are made righteous. We're not made to be sinners, but we are declared righteous. We are given that that title by God, and He sees us that way because that's how Christ is. It is important to note the difference between imputation and justification. Again, justification is a declaration, and imputation is where we were given something that is credited to our account, put on our, our books as belonging to us. Um, going back to the, the 16th century, this was the, the spark for the Reformation, whether or not uh, we are given God's righteousness, his justification by imputation or whether or not it's infused to us. So if it's imputed to us, then we are standing here in our own sin and Christ has uh, given us his righteousness. Whereas the, the Catholic view would be that um, man has some righteousness of his own um, though he's still lost in sin. And then Jesus gives righteousness and it's infused. Like it's the two different righteousnesses working together. Um, whereas the reformers definitely disown that. So no, it is imputed righteousness. It is granted to us as a gift. There's nothing for it to be infused with because we are by nature children of wrath. So Justification is to be declared righteous. Imputed is given to us by Christ. Here's our man from the free grace side of things. Good man, believer in the Lord. Um, 
and Charles Rary says that justification does not mean to make righteous, but to announce righteousness. It is a courtroom concept so that to justify is to give a verdict of righteous. Condemning or justifying announces the true and actual state of a person. A sinner's state is actually changed from being defined by personal rebellion against God to being defined by all of Christ's merits. That's an amazing thought. Yes. I, for a long time, I didn't understand justification. And it's because, and that last one talks about like a court case. Yeah. When you stand before a judge and they say you're justified, they're saying your actions, you know, if I shot somebody in self-defense, my actions were justified. That's not the justification that we get from God. Our sins are never justified, but our sins are removed from us and put on Christ. And then the person is justified. I don't know if that makes sense, but it helped me to understand that, you know, the, the difference in what the world sees as justification is justifying someone's actions. And our actions, our sins are never justified. They're removed. And the individual stands justified before God. Yeah. They are, Does that make sense? They're propitiated for, they're atoned for, justly paid for by Christ. Uh, and we are declared righteous by a righteousness that isn't our own. It's, it doesn't belong to us whatsoever. It's granted to us as a gift. Other thoughts? Questions? Well, we have a problem with our words because we do use them in different ways. Like pride is one I've struggled with my whole life because there's certain things that we appropriately use the word pride for in a good state, but also just you know justified. You know, when the when the courts say a person is not guilty, no matter how guilty they are, their state is their free from further condemnation for that, whether the court was right or wrong on that. But as he was saying, we have to we have to be clear that just because somebody was declared not guilty doesn't mean that they weren't guilty. There just wasn't enough evidence to convict them or the court's crooked or whatever. Yeah. But they do have that legal state Whereas that's why God can be just and the justifier because the sin did get paid. Language is tough. It is tough, yeah. And we're dealing with different languages trying to understand our language. So, yep. It is a, a worthwhile task, though. Well, it is. It's necessary. It's, it's imperative. Yes. Yeah, for sure. It's just like life. It's hard work, but you got to do it. Yeah. The alternative is life. And then when we're done with it, we'll be proud of it. And once that's the word, put it on the other, right? <laughs> All right. Second uh, Corinthians 5, 17 through 21, one of my yeah. favorite passages. This is indeed a key text for our sentence. So let's turn there and quickly look at this. We already referenced 
uh, verse 17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. So again, after this, if the old things have passed away, then we can't go on living this habitual lifestyle where we are marked by sin when, as 1 John 3 says, that would be um, something that would indicate we are rather than children of God, children of the devil. So we are new creatures. Old has passed away. New things have come. Verse 18. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us or brought us together to himself through Christ who gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So that has that same kind of courtroom type declaration of innocence. He's not counting to those who are his the trespasses against him, but instead he took them upon himself. Verse 20. Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you guys don't know that verse, commit that one to memory. That is my favorite verse, um, far and away, I think, which is hard to say of a Bible verse, but it is just so concise and it's all there. And it talks about that beautiful doctrine of imputation that God has placed our sin on, on Christ's account. He's placed Christ's righteousness on our account. It's that beautiful exchange of the gospel. That's why Romans 8 should have come right after that one. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation and fully righteous. And again, that's a paradox. It's hard to wrap our minds around because practically we're not righteous, right? Yeah. We're still working towards this uh, progressive sanctification. We are becoming more and more like Christ every day if we are in him by his Holy Spirit. But positionally, we are fully in Christ. We have been made new. And God sees us as perfect and clean and his. And so, again, language gets in the way. We're dealing with two different things when we're talking about sanctification. Um, we are, this present day, not fully righteous. However, we are fully righteous. We are, in fact, already glorified, Romans 8, right? Uh, it is past tense, it is finishing complete. So, the, the gospel is a, a beautiful, complex thing that we can continue to to delve into for the rest of our lives and never fully understand, which is great. Well, and this is why it's so important to define who Christ is. Yes. It, it, it's, it's not a side issue. De definitions, right? Just like yeah. Jerry was saying, definitions are critical. Because if, if you're worshiping a Christ that does not fully, completely, totally save you in and of himself and what he's done at a point in time on the cross, then you have the wrong Christ. And what's even more scary is we could put our our hope and our trust in a false Christ or Christ of our own understanding and we could still embrace a idea of moralism and still embrace some of the teachings of Christ um, that well you've heard it said 
you shall not murder, I say, don't hate your brother. You've heard it say, you shall not commit adultery, I say, don't look at a woman with lust. And somebody can embrace those, that higher level of moralism, and their life can look like it's progressively getting better. Like they are a new creature outwardly, when in fact inwardly, they're still their old flesh, and they've never been in, given this, this righteousness, that imputed righteousness has never been transferred to their account. So that is indeed scary. So we definitely need to make sure that we understand Christ properly as he has revealed himself to us. All right, remember Romans 5, another good chapter. That one should have been right after <laughs> Romans 8, which would be after 2 Corinthians 5, right? Uh, Romans 5, just as we were declared guilty because of Adam's sin, which was imputed to our account, we are now declared innocent or justified because Christ's goodness has been imputed to our account. The divide between the two sides is faith. So, um, let's see, I'm going to erase some stuff here. Have you guys ever heard the um, little saying or quip or whatever for uh, remembering that justified means just as if I'd never sinned. You guys ever heard that? Yeah. Okay. Well, some people say that, that to be justified is to be just as if I never sinned. Well, if I never sinned, let's say um, that this is our our righteousness on this line, right? Um, and as simple beings, we have a, an infinitely negative account with God of sin. We have no righteousness of our own, right? All of our righteousness is like filthy rags. Um, and so if we were just as if we'd never sinned, that would erase all this negative sin debt that we have, right? And we'll bring us back up here to, to ground zero, back up here to nothing that we would be neutral, so to speak. Well, we're not called to be neutral. We're called to be righteous as he is righteous. We're called to be holy as he is holy. And so to have a, a true understanding of what it means to be declared innocent, what it means to be justified, we need to have Christ's goodness. We need to be perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect, uh, Matthew 5, 48. And so that's why we need the imputation, imputation, the imputed righteousness of Christ so we can have a positive account. Uh, absolutely positive, infinite account of righteousness with Christ. So it would be better to say that if we were justified, it would be just as if we kept the whole law, just as if we'd um, done everything that we should, everything we were commanded. But that is absolutely impossible for us to do. So it's better to find justification as to be declared righteous because that's what it is. It's a declaration of a righteousness that we don't deserve that is imputed to our account because of what Christ has done for us. Thoughts or questions on that? Thank you. Briefly. So, yep, sorry. Um, so I actually heard, I think it was Bakken say, when we go to heaven, we can't forget all the sin that we've committed because it's in light of the sin that we've committed that we appreciate what Christ has done for us and that we praise him and that we bring glory to his name. You know, it's, you don't, you don't appreciate what you've been, that you've been saved unless you recollect what you've been saved from. And he was forgiven much, loves much, right? Right. right. 
Yeah, that's good. And yet there will be no shame, no guilt, no tear. Uh, so <coughs> paradox that we will God. have to remember our sin, but we'll be we'll be okay with that because well, I thought for, for the longest time I thought that I would forget my dad, but I don't think that's necessarily going to be true. And there's sadness in this life that he's gone and that he never knew the Lord, but every tear will be wiped away, right? Yeah. Yeah, there's mystery in that that we'll find out someday. Yep. Between the persons of God, all things change. Their holiness and righteousness and all of that, so everything else is gone. The thoughts are only in one, and it's God alone. Yeah. In that sense of the words, because we won't dwell on the past because the future is in front of us, the old holy supreme God. And his supremacy is so great that I don't think it's going to, our past is not going to be brought up. Our thoughts are not going to be of that. They're going to be about God continuously. Because uh, in heaven, you can't sin. I mean, it's the perfect scenario. <laughs> you want to call it that, I mean, it's gone. Yeah. So, but yeah, it's a, a mystery. We don't know. It is a mystery. We might get into it a little bit when we get into eschatology, but we're still in superiority. We haven't gotten mm-hmm. you know, with the Christ. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see if we can get there. All right, here's a question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, how are you righteous before God? And the answer that Heidelberg gives is that only by a true faith in Jesus Christ, that is, though my conscience accuse me that I have grievously sinned against all the commandments of God and kept none of them, and am still inclined to all evil, yet God grants and imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ, as if I never had nor committed any sin, and myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me, if only I accept such benefit with a believing heart. So again, this same concept, that if we just say that we never committed any sin, that doesn't doesn't cut it, that doesn't do it for us. But if we had ourselves accomplished all the obedience which Christ had rendered for us, that's what happens when we are imputed with his righteousness. All right, unity with Christ. similar connected um, doctrine teaching that as we are reckoned righteous in Christ we are also unified with him now it can be easy to glide past that but that's a big statement that we are unified with the almighty creator of the universe by Christ that we are in him and he is in us that is uh, a mind blowing thought Uh, John 15 and First Peter two. Will somebody look up those? Who's got that fifteen? Got it. All right. First Peter two four through five. Got that. All right. Um, these are going to be illustrations that teach about our relationship to Christ. So as they're being read, let's consider uh, how we relate to Christ. Go ahead, Gary. Yeah. First Peter two. Peter two and coming to him as to. A living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. All right. It's beautiful. We were uh, a rejected stone. We've been made into living stones and built up into Christ. 
sorry, I dropped 15, four, five. Abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. Yeah, that's, again, a beautiful reminder that we are dependent upon the vine. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. And yes, that reminds us we get our ability from him, like it wraps up that apart from him, we can do nothing. It's good to recognize in humility that fact, but also to recognize this aspect of unity, that we are connected with the vine. We are connected with Christ. We are in him. He is in us. Again, go back to John 10. Um, we have a unity in him. John 17 in Christ's high priestly prayer, praying to the Father that we would be united with him and made one just as they are one. Um, to have that unity with Christ is an amazing blessing for the believer. And then Ephesians 2, uh, one of the, the great texts in the New Testament. Um, <coughs> 4 through 6 says, But God... Um, that's great, just those two words because of what comes before. I'll start in verse 3. It says, um, Among them, that is the sons of disobedience, you too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Again, to indulge in the desires of the flesh and the lusts of the mind. Um, these guys in free grace world say, that's okay, you can do that if you have just been saved. But it says, you formerly did these things when you were children of wrath. Um, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Again, that is where we're at positionally. We're seated in the heavenly places as representatives of Christ, as his ambassadors. And we ought to live in a way that is representative of where we are positionally in Christ. Sorry, you need that for a second? Oh, okay. All right, beyond our personal unions with Christ, the church collectively is united with Christ as his bride. Notice the capital C on church, the universal invisible church is united collectively as a bride of Christ, which is why fellowship and accountability are so vitally important. We are together, his bride united with him. Ephesians 5, 22 through 30, talking about um, marital relationships or relationships as um, slaves and servants um, with fathers and, and sons, outlines this concept that all of the redeemed together are united with Christ by faith. And also Revelation 19, 7 through 10 speaks to you. <coughs> Revelation 19, 7. Says, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It is given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, and the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Doesn't sound like somebody who goes on continually sinning, right? <laughs> then he said to me, 
right. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Again, this is a picture of the church, those who are saved, the new cre creation in Christ. And he said to me, these are true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and your brethren who hold the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is the future hope for the church of Christ, that we will be um, wed with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb, where we will be clothed in these white clothes and, and robes of of white that represent uh, who we are in Christ, that positional righteousness that we have in him. Christians are in Christ, and Christ is in them. Every aspect of salvation is based on this unity, from election in eternity past to glorification in eternity future. And then baptism, uh, as represented in Romans 6, is a symbol of being dead in our old way of life and raised again to newness of life. This is all speaking of our unity in Christ. And we can't be unified to God if we are still dead in our trespasses and sin. And um, one of the, the things that I personally am most convicted by is the, the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I think we can minimize that oftentimes to say, well, I'm not going to say GD, I'm not going to say Jesus flippantly or as a swear word. But when we as Christians, we are wearing that name, Jesus, and we go out and we live like the world and we are distinct and separate from the world, we are taking his name in vain. We are not representing him well. And I think that we break the third commandment much more often than, than we would like to think. We'll talk about election next week. All right, Wayne Grudem, um, Andy's favorite theologian, defines <laughs> this unity as containing four aspects. One, that we are in Christ, and this isn't the list of your bottom of your notes, by the way. Uh, two, that Christ is in us. Three, that we are like Christ. And four, that we are with Christ. So in all aspects, we are unified with Christ. Once again, MacArthur and Mayhew say, such intimate spiritual union is unique to Christianity. In no other religion is the object of worship said to become the life of the worshiper. They may follow the teachings of their respective leaders, but Christians alone are said to be in Christ, united to him as their representative, as their substitute, as their mediator, as the one who has uh, propitiated their sins and imputed that righteousness to them. John Frame says that God's eternal plan to unite all things in Christ is revealed to us in history when God forgave our sins on the basis of Jesus' shed blood. So again, that unity that we have in Christ is central to salvation, to eternal life in this world and in the next. We have to be united with Christ. And this is a list that's at the bottom of your page. The five aspects of the gospel. We have the sinfulness of man, which speaks to, um, or is spoken about in anthropology. We talked about that. The uniqueness of Christ. And Andy, you mentioned that. We have to know Christ, the one true Christ. The substitutionary atonement. The bodily resurrection and justification by faith. If you have those aspects, you have the gospel. If you have any one of those taken out, then that's not the full biblical gospel. You've 
uh, truncated the gospel at that point, and it's not a, a saving gospel. If you only recognize the sinfulness of man, but you don't recognize the true uniqueness of Christ, you have, again, a Christ of your own understanding. That Christ isn't able to atone for your sin in a substitutionary sense. If you don't believe in the Christ that was bodily resurrected from the dead, then uh, you don't have a, a living Christ who was able to overcome death. You are able to find life in him. All right. Um, wrapping up. What comfort is there in the things that we're talking about today? In one sentence answers. It's not on our basis. It's in God. Amen. Yeah, we don't have to work, we don't have to strive. And it is finished. It is done. Right? How could God justly say that you're innocent? Christ's righteousness has been imputed to me. Yeah, so he has a righteousness of his own, and he has taken our sin and he's paid for it. He hasn't just swept it under the rug and pretended like, oh. I'm going to overlook that. That would be just. That would be merciful and gracious. But our God is both merciful, gracious, and just. So he must punish sin, as he did in the person of Christ. And is there room in our faith to say that people of other faiths can go to heaven? Absolutely not. And that's hard and difficult. We'll talk about that a little bit in the next service uh, for a moment, talking about evangelism and the importance of uh, evangelism. That can be a difficult thing to do, but it is a necessary thing for us to do if we have any care or concern for those who are not in Christ to point out the exclusivity of Jesus as the one true God and Savior. Let's pray. God, we thank you that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, and that he has taken our sin upon himself and that he took it to the cross and he took all of our our certificates of debt that were held against us and nailed them to the cross and rose again from the dead so that we could have life. God, we thank you that you indeed are both just and the justifier, that you aren't a God who overlooks our sin, but you are a God who has taken our sin and you have, you have made it right and you have given us your righteousness. You have set us apart to be ministers of reconciliation, that we would be your ambassadors. Again, give us a, a burden for those who don't know you and boldness to speak your word, your name to them so that they too might know you, that they might be united with Christ, imputed with your righteousness. God, help us to, to just revel in that fact that we are united with the almighty God of the universe and to live our lives in such a way that we reflect that rightly. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm.